Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast, and thank you for tuning in. If you're tuning in through Spotify or iTunes or one of the other platforms that we come in on, thank you for joining us. If you're watching on YouTube, please do not forget to click the subscribe button for con- and, and, and the bell also for continued notifications. I do appreciate those subscriptions and, uh, and, and hope that you are gleaning much from this channel. That's why I, I do it. This is a way, it's, it's, it's mutually beneficial, I guess, because it's a way for me to, to, um, to brainstorm, to think about doctrine, um, and it's also a way for you, the listener, hopefully, to benefit in some way from that exercise. So today what I want to do is I want to look at an Orthodox creed. An Orthodox creed is a general Baptist document. So in the 17th century, you had um, you know, a distinction between the general Baptists and the particular Baptists. Through the particular Baptist line, you have things like the First London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, um, and, and so on. And obviously, that develops on up through uh, the general or the, the the particular Baptist line is is developed and and maintained all the way up through the 1700s, 1800s, and up to present. Um, but there were also general Baptists who were, you know, there was some diversity among them, but we would describe them now as as Arminian in terms of soteriology, uh, they, uh, at, at bare minimum, would reject the doctrine of limited atonement. Uh, hence, they don't believe in particular atonement. They are general atonement, right? That They believe in the general atonement. So uh, that's why they're called the general Baptists. And while we have some strong disagreements with the general Baptists soteriologically, there is much to glean from how they... Uh, organize not only the the Orthodox Creed in terms of its method, but what they have to say about the doctrine of God in the first two articles. They actually begin an Orthodox Creed very scholastically with the doctrine of God first. Articles 1 and 2 deal with the doctrine of God first, the essence of God, then, of course, the uh, attributes of God. So let me, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull up here... Um, Hopefully, uh, if I can get it to cooperate, um, an outline. There we go. Um, so this this creed and and let me go to my screen here so I can explain you know what you're looking at um, and how this is going to work. So uh, on the far right, you see the cover page for an Orthodox creed. It's it's yeah, it's right there. And then in the middle, you will see First John one five highlighted. And then on the far left, there is John 5:23. Now we're gonna we're gonna this side over here, this this uh, this uh, left hand side in the middle, we're gonna take in order. So we're gonna look at the left hand side first, and then the middle, uh, and then this this side here, this right side, we're gonna be interacting with throughout. So um, this this Orthodox Creed was produced. It was at least signed on to in 1678. It was actually probably framed in 1677, which, interestingly enough, is, is the same year that the, uh, the first edition of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith was, uh, was uh, drafted. Um, and so it, 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 was, it, was, it was actually published or signed on to in 1678, uh, and it was printed actually in the year 1679, or at least this particular edition was. Um, 
It was probably framed by a gentleman named Thomas Monk, who was obviously a general Baptist, um, but the jury's kind of out on that. We don't know for sure if that's the guy who framed it, and then you know everyone just kind of came along after that and ascended to it, or, or what. But it was probably Thomas Monk who was involved in the actual uh, framing of the, uh, the Orthodox Creed. And the motive behind the Orthodox Creed was not to set forth distinctly general Baptistic theology. It was to find Catholicity. Um, and by Catholicity, I don't mean big C Catholic, I mean small C Catholic. Uh, they, are, they are trying to find and locate the points of doctrine that um, even those who are not general Baptists would agree upon. So this is a document intended for doctrinal unity in the nation of England in particular uh, during a very turbulent time. And it was a turbulent time both politically and theologically. You know, back in uh, the 1640s, uh, there was the Westminster Assembly uh, that took place from, I believe, 1641 to 1651. So there was 10 years there. Um, and, and that was an effort to reform the, the Church of England, broadly speaking. There was, there was a lot going on with the Westminster Assembly, but that was one of the chief goals, was to reform the documentations kind of constituting the Church of England. And, and the fruit of that was the Westminster Confession of Faith, Westminster Larger Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and, um, and some other publications having to do with worship. Um, so England is trying to figure out the organization of both their polity and the, the unity of their doctrine. Uh, that's kind of the context here. But, but, but while that's going on, you have politics, right? And um, it was uh, Oliver Cromwell who uh, had a hand, a large hand, in the execution of Charles I. Um, and then for a while there, there was a, a season of tolerance until... I want to say the 1660s, and then that tolerance dissipated with the ascent of Charles II to the throne. And, um, and so all of that's in the background, right? So by the time you get up to the 1670s or early 1680s, uh, there's, there's a different political picture than that one, but, it, but all of that's in the background, and all of that is historically contextualizing what's going on. So there's a big need um, especially for Baptists, when you think of the accusations that's being laid at the at the feet of the Baptists that they're Anabaptistic, that they are that they're heterod they're heterodox, they don't believe in the Trinity, all these wild accusations that that are coming out, and, and they're being aligned with certain groups that they themselves would not have aligned themselves with. Um, and so there was a great need to publish what they actually believed. This is part of the reason for the first and the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And here you have the general Baptist effort. Um, in, in publishing what they believe and, and where they have agreement with the particular Baptists and uh, the Savoy uh, Declarationists and, and even, you know, the Westminster uh, Presbyterians. So that's kind of the motive behind this document. It's not a, it's not a specifically or, 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 or particularly general Baptistic document. It's, a, it's an Orthodox creed. It's, it's generally Orthodox. That's the goal behind it is to find agreement on the points that can be agreed upon. Um, and we're going to be looking today at the first two articles. 
of this creed. The first two articles, which as I you know scroll down here, we'll see. And you can see the first article is on the essence of God, and then the second article is of the divine attributes in God. Very crucial to our point, uh, to our contemporary point, as we engage the discussion of the doctrine of divine simplicity and how that works out in terms of our language with uh, the divine attributes and, and how we relate you know, discourse on the divine attributes to God himself or the divine essence. Um, and so I, I think these articles are very informative in that way. So if we look at the first article first, uh, of the essence of God, you'll notice some familiar terms. I'm just going to read it, but then we'll note some familiar, um, not terms so much, but phrases even. Uh, it says, we verily believe, or we truly believe, that there is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure, spiritual, or invisible substance, who hath an absolute, independent, unchangeable, and infinite being without matter or form, body, parts, or passions. And then they have some scripture texts, uh, uh, and in this rendition of the, uh, of the uh, creed, they're not cordoned off with quotation marks or anything, they're just kind of thrown in to the, the final paragraph following each article. For I am the Lord, I change not. That's Malachi 3.6. God is a spirit, now unto the king eternal, immortal. That's First Timothy 1, I believe. Immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Uh, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Ye heard a voice, but saw no similitude or saw no form. Um, that is uh, Deuteronomy uh, 14. I, I believe. So those are the texts that they're interacting with to support that first paragraph, that first article. And if you are, are paying attention to what is said there and what you read there, uh, there's a, there, there should be uh, some familiar language to you. Um, and, and what this should tell us is that this language was quite common uh, in the 17th century. Uh, I would argue that the concepts behind the language are common throughout the history of the church, but here, this, this particular language and this well-developed articulation of the divine essence is, is very common in the 17th century. It's, it, this is across the board. These are general Baptists here, and terminologically, they're agreeing with the Westminster Confession. Uh, they're agreeing with the language in both uh, longer and shorter Westminster uh, catechisms. They're agreeing with the, the First London Baptist Confession of Faith. They're agreeing with the, uh, the first edition of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith and what would come to be eventually the 1688 or the 1689. Um, and so this is across the board. General Baptist, Particular Baptist, Westminster. You're going to find the same language in, in Usher. So uh, this, this language would also be in the pre-Westminsterian um, Church of England as well. This is not new to the Westminster Assembly. It didn't originate there. This is going back before that even. So this this language is across the board. It, it wasn't subject to questioning. In fact, the reason that the 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 General Baptists are 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 intentional with starting with uh, the divine essence and the attributes in God is it, it could be scholastic methodology, but I think there's also a political motivation. Uh, in, in starting with those two articles, in that the Baptists were often accused of being aligned with certain Anabaptistic groups who denied the Trinity. And so they're beginning with their doctrine of God, all right? And um, they're, they're not pantheists, they're not panentheists, they're not Trinitarian heretics or, or, or those who profess Christianity yet deny the Trinity. 
um, they are uh, orthodox uh, Christians in terms of their doctrine of God. Okay, they're 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 in agreement. So the reason that they're using this language is to show that they're not heretics, and I think that that's very important to consider. The fact that they are are setting this forth in an effort to show that they maintain doctrinal continuity on this essential point, and they're marshalling these terms to do that. Which means that if you were to, in the 17th century, deny these terms, right? If you were to deny, for example, that, um, that God's subsistence was not in and of himself, that um, his essence could be comprehended, that um, he was not pure, spiritual, invisible, um, you know, along with the anthropomorphites who would say that God had a body, or to say that, you know, God changes in some way, would have been considered uh, heterodoxical language at the time, all right? Um, now, that doesn't mean, of course, that uh, everybody who was a General Baptist, you know, the 10-year-old General Baptist who would have uh, attended a General Baptist local church who subscribed to this creed. Uh, let's say that that 10-year-old was truly regenerate and saved by the Holy Ghost and 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 was uh, a follower of Christ who had faith worked in him. Um, notice how I'm describing the Calvinist version of soteriology, soteriology within the context of a General Baptist local congregation. But if that would have been the case, it, 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 you know, the 10-year-old probably could not describe... Uh, the essence of God in these terms, right? I mean, maybe they could in the 17th century, but generally speaking, a 10-year-old probably would not have been able to uh, articulate a doctrine of God to this extent, even though in principle they would have believed it and they would not have denied it later on when they were taught the, the correct formulae. So um, I think it's very important to to make a distinction there that, that you know, when, when uh, in, in these conversations, when the term heterodox is thrown around, it needs to be applied and used very carefully, um, if at all. Really, I think it's hindering discussion at this point, but um, th there's a difference between someone, you know, ignorantly believing in heterodoxy or assuming heterodoxy before they're corrected, and those who would remain recalcitrant digging into heterodoxy. There's a, there's a distinction to be made between those individuals. And I think in large part in our conversations now with regard to the doctrine of God, you're dealing a lot with um, the ignorance piece. And I don't mean to be insulting with that term. I'm ignorant about a uh, hundred thousand different things a day. So, um, you know, this is just one area that, um, that, uh, that I've come to, uh, to uh, develop in my own theology by God's grace. And, and it's been a long you know, road. It's been a it's been a happy road, but it's been a long road, and um, and so I I don't mean the term ignorant to function as a slight here. I'm I'm just saying that that I think that because of the milieu that we've we've kind of been a part of over the last several decades, there's just been a lot of uh, of cloud and smoke over you know the the uh, classical construal that's found universally amongst the Orthodox Christians in England in the 17th century. I think that, that there's been, it's not totally lost, but it's been obscured. So that's what I mean by that. So I think we're coming out of that, but I think it's it's going to be, again, a long, hard road as we come out of that uh, ignorance concerning the doctrine of God. So hopefully, you know, this channel plays a part in recovering, to some extent, 
you know, the classical formulation of the doctrine of God that we see here in the in the general Baptist uh, document uh, and Orthodox creed. So um, when we're looking at the first two articles, uh, the, the first article, uh, the, the first line that, that may appear to be, uh, that may appear to be, um, oh, what should I say, familiar to readers when they read it is that line, whose subsistence is in and of himself. Among other things, there are, there are obviously other uh, familiar familiar terms, but but that's a major familiar term or a familiar phrase there. Um, and um, just a moment, sorry. Um, that phrase is not found in the Westminster Confession, and it's not found in the Savoy. In fact, if you read the Westminster Confession, the opening of chapter 2 on God and the Holy Trinity, there is but one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. So um, you don't have that particular phrase. They would not have denied that phrase, obviously. They believed God was self-existent. Um, but that phrase is, is not found in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2. And uh, so, you know, there, there are other words that would imply the substance behind, you know, um, you know God's subsistence is in and of himself. But, but that, those words um, specifically or in particular do not show up in the Westminster Confession, nor do they show up in the Savoy. Um, though both those documents would agree in substance. That phrase does show up in the first London Baptist Confession of Faith, so it's possible there's been some osmosis and language between uh, the first London Baptist, conf those who framed the first London Baptist Confession and the General Baptist here. It also uh, shows up in the second London Baptist Confession of Faith, um, but of course the second London is drafted in 1677, or the first edition thereof, uh, which is the same year or thereabouts this creed was was also drafted. So that's an interesting point of, of potential connection. And then you'll notice that uh, there's another familiar phrase, without matter or form. Uh, there's a, a, some difference there in that particular part of this phrase, without matter or form. And I think some qualifications have to go with that as well. But but I'm, I'm specifically interested in body, parts, or passions. That's a commonplace in the 17th century. Denying body, parts, or passions in God is a common phrase, and it's found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's found in the Savoy Declaration. It's found in the uh, First London Baptist Confession of Faith, and it's found in the first edition of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. So I think that's very significant that across the board, that phraseology is used um, and then they produce familiar proof texts as well. Malachi 3.6, John 4.24, 1 Timothy 1.17, Deuteronomy 14.12, in support of that article. And then the second um, article is of the divine attributes in God. Now, this one's probably going to be more relevant to the contemporary discussion that we've, that we've had uh, of late concerning the, the attributes of God and how those relate to this to the single, the simple divine essence. Um, you have, first of all, in this paragraph, what I want everybody to know is that you have an affirmation or an implied, at least, 
um, natural theology. Uh, and that's right here. Every particle of being in heaven and earth leads us to the infinite being of beings. And what they mean by that is, is in terms of our knowledge. Um, every particle of being, every particle of contingency in heaven and earth, which is everything, right? It's, it's all of heaven and earth are created. Um, and, and those contingent particles, the way they put it, those contingent creatures, those contingent things, leads us to the infinite being of beings. Um, and that is, uh, not only an imp- the, the implication of that phrase is in natural theology, but it's a, it's a, it's a reference to a specific argument within the, pro- within the Thomistic prolegomena, which would have been an argument from contingency. Um, it, it, it could be, you know, as Ed Fazer calls it, helpfully, I think, a Neoplatonic proof for the existence of God, which argues from complexity to simplicity. Now, it's not the argument stated, but it's definitely an oblique reference to that argument, to that argumentation. That contingent being leads us to necessary being, or what they say, infinite being of beings. That is, there is no being beyond or underneath or in support of or outside of this being to make this being what this being is. Self-existent, infinite being, right? Um, So every particle of being in heaven and earth leads us to the infinite being of beings, namely God, who is simplicity. So here they're, they're using a substantive phrase, a substantive uh, to identify the divine essence with simplicity. This God just is simplicity. One mere and perfect act. Now that's an affirmation of actus purus. All right, one mere and perfect act is just another way of saying God is pure actuality. Without all composition, there's an affirmation uh, of, there's a denial of composition in God. It's a remotion rather, of composition in God, Um, but it's also positively stated as an affirmation of divine simplicity, and it's without all composition. So they're denying all composition in God, all partition in God, without qualification. Then you have, uh, you know, immense sea of perfections, who is the only eternal being, everlasting, without time, whose immense presence, that's omnipresence, is always everywhere present, having immutability without any alteration in being or will. Now, don't ask me how the General Baptists hold this together with election. I'm not in the business of trying to figure out how they try to be consistent, because I don't think that they are being consistent. However, the doctrine of God on this point is is on point, even though it's probably very, and actually, I can say for certain, it's very inconsistent with their soteriology. Um... But what they're saying here is that there's no alteration or contingency in God's being or his will, right? No change whatsoever. No alteration in being or will. Now, it's been common for people to say, well, in God's being, there is no, there is no change in his essence. But there's something that has to happen with his will because you have, after all, God at one point not creating and then God does create. So, there would seem to be some kind of movement of will or motion in God's will. And that's very popular to try and, 
and parse out and 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 claim today by making that hard and fast distinction between being and will, which I believe separates the divine essence. It, it partitions the divine essence, and it actually puts another substance in God, which is the will itself that's in addition to, or at least accrues to secondarily, the divine being or the divine essence. So there's it's, it's, it's almost like another way of affirming two substances in the one God, which is a nonsensical way of, of going about theology proper, and it's, and it's not orthodox either. But that is a popular way of trying to get around the confusion that has to do with creation at once not being, and then creation coming into being um, at the command of, of, of God. And, and his will. So they, they try to say, well, there is, they try to allow some change and that change taking place in the will of God. And then what do they do? I, I have it highlighted here in, in article two. They say, in a word, God is infinite of universal, unlimited, and incomprehensible perfection, most holy, wise, just, and good, whose wisdom is his justice, whose justice is his holiness, and whose wisdom, justice, and holiness is himself. Okay, so this is a document from 1678, printed in 1679, identifying God's attributes with one another and then identifying the attributes with the divine essence. Wisdom is justice. Justice is holiness. Wisdom, justice, and holiness is himself. And there's been a lot of controversy that's revolved around the identification of God's attributes with his divine essence. But this is a, a classical affirmation of just that, contra those who would, who would dissent, you know, from, from that position. And I think, uh, in large part, the dissent is happening based on, uh, there's some talking past one another going on here. Uh, there's some uh, distinction in distinction that's not taking place. For example, uh, there are, there are different kinds of distinctions, right? we can make a real distinction, in which case there would be one thing in God really and truly different or distinct from another thing in God. And that's what we don't want to do. We're saying that there is no real distinction like that in God. But then there's a, a virtual or conceptual distinction. That is a distinction that's made only in our minds as we perceive and experience God through his word uh, or through creation, for example. So we, we are creatures bound to discursive knowing, and therefore we know in terms of subject plus predicate. But God doesn't exist in the manner of subject plus predicate. So we're bound to uh, conceptually distinguish um, our, our, you know, some aspect of God from another aspect of God because we're bound to think discursively or in piecemeal concerning the divine essence. But God cannot be piecemealed in reality. In say that is in, in, ad intra, there is no piecemeal in God. There is no subject plus predicate in God. God is simple. Uh, but since we are bound to thinking in terms of subject plus predicate, we have to talk about God whose subject plus, you know, what we say he is. That would be his attributes. So you have, therefore, subject plus predicate. And, and since God doesn't exist in that manner, since God doesn't exist in the, in the, in the manner or mode of creatures, um, then, of course, you know, our creaturely language is, and our creaturely experience is going to fail to properly appropriate the doctrine of divine simplicity right? I mean, we just can't, we just can't do it in terms of our creaturely knowing. 
They add at the end of this article, most mer- he's mer- most merciful, gracious, faithful, and true, a full fountain of love, and who is that perfect, sovereign, divine will, the Alpha of Supreme Being. Again, don't ask me how the General Baptists hold this together with a soteriology. Um, and then a couple of proof texts that they use. Is it true indeed that God will dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heavens of and the and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. This is Solomon's perplexity that he's been commissioned to build God a house. Um, uh, and um, in First Kings eight twenty seven, um, and uh, and then it also they also have here how much less this house which I have built. Great is the Lord and worthy to be praised, and his greatness is incomprehensible. Um, so w- what I want to do is I want to look now at a couple of texts, and this is just how we're going to finish our time here, that they marshal um, in support of this second uh, article. A- in particular, their statement concerning actus purus or pure actuality and then there's statement concerning divine simplicity or God being without all composition. So the first one we're going to look at is over here on this side, the left-hand side of your screen. Um, and that's John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now, this text is historically formative of Trinitarian orthodoxy, but here they're using this text of God generally speaking. God has life in himself. And there is, and so they're applying this to their assertion that God is perfect act, one mere and perfect act, that he's actus purus, pure actuality. So they're using John 5.26 in support of that doctrine of actus purus. Now, why or how can they use John 5.26 in support of that? Well, simply put, God has life in himself. He does not have life from another. That, at bare minimum, that's what John 5.26 is telling us. He does not receive life from another. Um, he, he has life in himself. This is a statement of self-existence. Uh, it, it's a statement of, of sheer independence. Uh, God is not dependent or contingent. He is necessary being, and thus he has life in himself. And and you could you could even, you know, theologically, you could you could put any word any of these following terms for life. You could put essence, nature, being. Uh, the Father has being in himself. The, the the Father has essence in himself, nature in himself, and so on. could be understood there. And so this is, at bare minimum, it's telling us that God is self-existent. And that means, again, at bare minimum, there can be nothing in God wanting in terms of capacity. There cannot be in God a capacity to be other than he is because he's already fullness. He's already life itself, and he has life in and of himself, um, the perfection thereof, and and therefore cannot be added to nor taken away from because there's no potentiality in him. There's no capacity in him to be other than he's not. So there's no, there's no uh, potential to be actualized beyond that which he already is. God has life in himself. There's nothing wanting, nothing lacking in him. And so there can be no change, as it were, as well. Now, moving on to, uh, the, and, and again, that's that's they're using that in support of pure actuality. But what about their support for this, what has been lately called extreme simplicity, this hyper-simplicity, we might say, this overextended doctrine of simplicity? Um, wh- what do they use? What do they marshal in support of that? And that's, 
1 John 1, 5, right here in the middle of your screen. First, what, what John does is in 1 John 1, 5 is he, he, is, he, is he speaks of God in terms of a substantive clause. God is light. And so there, that's a phrase where God is uh, substantively or substantially identified with a perfection. Um, and and, and uh, you could say that perfection is light. You could also say it's purity or, or holiness. This is a reference to God's holiness. Um, and, and, and again, I'm going with, with the minimal implication here. There is no privation of light in God. There is no privation of light in God because to the extent that there would be privation of light in God, there would be darkness. But here John is saying there is no darkness at all. So that means to us that there is no privation of light. That indicates that God is actus purus. Again, there's no privation in him. He is fullness. Um, he's lacking nothing. He's wanting nothing. And so there can be nothing further actualized in him. God is purus or actus purus, pure actuality. Um, and then, and then of course, you have um, there being no real distinction in God or between God's essence on the one hand and his light or holiness on another. The divine essence here, it is claimed by the Apostle John in 1 John 1, 5, is light. The divine essence is light. And in the divine essence, in God, there is no darkness at all. So that is why you have the follow-on, the rest of the paragraph, because of that substantive clause, um, where you have these general Baptist theologians, Thomas Monk, saying that, you know, these attributes are, should, we should understand that in reality or, or ad intra, these attributes are really just, these are creaturely ways of us describing the one divine essence, which is justice, wisdom, holiness. It just is wisdom, justice, and holiness. And wisdom, justice, and holiness are not parts in God. They're not, they're not uh, properties in God truly distinct in him or attributes truly distinct in him. Attributes are our conceptual distinctions that we make, right? That are, that, and the conceptual distinctions that scripture makes in the effort to accommodate to creatures, right? But in God, it's all the divine essence, and that's it. He's fullness. He is light. He is holiness. He is wisdom. He is justice. He is his holiness. Um, and so there's there's no there's no uh, division or distinction in him. Um, and and then of course to say and the, the interesting thing is that they begin the first article with uh, or the second article rather on the, of the divine attributes in God. With this statement here, every particle of being in heaven and earth leads us to the infinite being of beings, namely God, who is simplicity. So what they're saying there is that creation is composed. Creation can be distinguished really and truly. Creation can be uh, separated, partitioned off. Uh, in fact, it, it has to be. It's composed. Um, it's not even. It's not only composed of physical properties or physical attributes, but it's also composed of of metaphysical properties and metaphysical attributes. Right? Um, we can distinguish one universal from another, um, and so on and so forth. One essence, one creaturely essence from another, um, and so there are there are metaphysical divisions 
or distinctions, real distinctions in, in creation as well as, you know, physical, obviously physical distinction. Um, but that's not God, right? God is simplicity. There is no distinction or bifurcation or division in God or partition in God. Um, composition is, is a creaturely trait. It's a creaturely, we might say, imperfection, right? Um, and, 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 and simplicity or non-composition is in God. So if, if, if composition, all kinds of composition, is germane to creation, then we should remove that from the divine essence. We should banish that from the divine essence. Because if we said that God is composed and creation is composed, God is composed, let's say, you know, the softest version of, of saying that God is composed is to affirm metaphysical properties in God. Um, so let's say God is composed of metaphysical properties. Creation is also composed of metaphysical properties, right? So that puts God and creation into the same genus, namely into the genus of composition, which means that you don't, there's no longer, you've, you've blurred on that point of composition the creator-creature distinction. And that's what we cannot do, all right? Um, and, and so that's one of the motives among many uh, behind the language that you see here in the, the Orthodox Creed and the language like it elsewhere. Anyways, guys, I'm going to wrap this up. We're almost at 40 minutes, and I didn't want to go too long today. I hope this was helpful to you. Again, this is the, this is the Orthodox Creed and Orthodox Creed. Not to be confused with the Orthodox Catechism. That's a particular Baptist document. This is an Orthodox Creed uh, or a Protestant Confession of Faith. Um, and so that, and it's drafted by the General Baptist, printed in 1679. So if you're interested in looking that up, you can probably find it for free online. I have a Logos copy here, um, but you can you can most certainly, I'm sure, find it uh, for free, published online if you would like to read through it. God bless you guys. Again, if you haven't subscribed to the channel, please do so. Click the bell for continued notifications. And also don't forget my newsletter, joshsummer.substack.com. God bless.